Hello and welcome to Lightmap from SIFTA. My name is Gianni and my co-host on this episode is Daniel. Thank you for joining us. Hey there, everybody. How are we doing today? On Lightmap, we explore what it takes to make video games and interactive media and we meet creative people from all around the world. It's a guide to that interesting new gameplay experiences and every episode we talk to developers, artists, musicians, researchers and more. Our guest on Lightmap this week is Nikolai Trashinsky, uh, who is artist and animator and uh, the chief cheater on the game Card Shark. Uh, who, and also worked with uh, Nerial as part of that. Uh, Nikolai, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. The art in this game is really captivating, and it looks unlike most games we've ever played, so we're excited to learn more about your process, Nikolai. But before we get into the interview, let's find out what's been making the news this week on Walkthrough. Hi, I'm Kyle Paletto. And I'm Gianni DiGiovanni. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 5th of May. Escape from Tarkov developers relent, allowing access to PvE mode for players who bought an all-DLC bundle, but not before saying, sorry, you're mad. Solo developed Manor Lords and indie city builder break sales and Steam records. Take-Two shuts down studios behind Kerbal Space Program and Oli Oli World. And we wrap all the cool things announced at ID at Xbox. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. Australia's best video game podcast. This is Lightmap. Get every episode free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and sifter.com.au. Nikolai, if people haven't come across the game before, what is Card Shark? Card Shark is um, a game about card cheating set in 18th century France, pre-revolution. So you are a nobody who joins a mysterious character who calls himself the Comte of Saint-Germain, and he will teach you how to cheat at cards, and um, uh, you will travel with him around France and parts of Europe, swindling uh, other aristocrats and nobles for their money. Um, now, I understand the inspiration behind this game um, comes pretty directly from a 1975 Stanley Kubrick film. Yes, yes. So um, a lot of people have noticed the similarities and that's because we did not try to hide them on the opposite. Uh, I'm, I'm quite proud of taking that inspiration. So yeah, Barry Lyndon, it's a movie I loved since I was a teenager uh, so many times. And um, some years ago, like I don't really keep track anymore, but maybe like Six to eight years ago, I started learning card magic as a hobby, uh, just for fun, to make tricks for friends. And as I was practicing and learning tricks, I remember this scene from Mary Lyndon, which is very memorable, where the main hero cheats at cards. And it's just this tiny scene, maybe 10 minutes in a three-hour movie. Uh, but it's a very interesting scene. And from that perspective of being in the process of learning card magic and doing tricks, it made a lot of sense. And uh, the connection kind of was made that, oh, actually this scene, it could be the concept of an entire game, just this this tiny episode. So we started thinking about that and, and 
slowly it started to develop. <laughs> how long have you been working on the game and how long did it take to take that idea and, and make it into something playable? Well, the idea uh, from the moment I had the idea to the moment I actually pitched it to Arnaud, uh, who I worked with, who was the designer and producer on the game, maybe a couple of years passed uh, where it was just a, an idea in the back of my head, which was, yeah, this would be really cool. Uh, I have I don't have the resources to make this. So it's just a cool idea I have. Um, then things kind of aligned. Like Arnaud just finished Pikuniku. He was interested in doing something. I told him about this. He got really excited. And so this was the uh, around December 2018. So I spent that uh, the end of the year making a storyboard for how the game could work. And we started working a prototype from that. So that was about a year where they were still working on other projects. They were still on, a, on one of the Reigns projects and other stuff. So we were kind of on and off working on Shark for a year on a prototype. And then a couple of years of actual production. So three years in total for me, but... Uh, it depends, like different amount of time for different people on the team. As somebody that doesn't know too much about card tricks and the world of, of all of that, were all of the different, um, I guess, schemes in the game when you're using different card tricks, are they all based in reality or did you design any of them specifically for card sharks? So the individual techniques are all 100% real, um, all the methods no, for, for, for doing stuff. And... Um, uh, I did a bunch of research on this. Some things I knew already because they overlap with card magic. Some things are super specific to card cheating. And um, a lot of it is drawn from a very uh, influential book called The Expert at the Card Table, which is a book supposedly about card cheating, but it was mostly useful for card magic. Uh, many people speculate that the writer who presents itself as a cheater who needed money and therefore reveal his secrets in reality was maybe a magician because it's it's uh, it's written under a pseudonym and nobody knows who he really was but the fantasy is still really interesting you know like a cheater who reveals his tricks in the book so a lot of stuff was drawn from there uh, some stuff was drawn from other re references including some bits from steve forte who is an expert at um, cheating and Cheating prevention was worked as a consultant for Las Vegas casinos. And um, so the techniques are, in itself, are all real. I guess what was more interpretation was how to put them together. Because if you, if you buy like a book on techniques for card cheating or some videos uh, or I don't know, like it's very hard to find or I have not found anywhere where it teaches you, okay, how to put this all together in a practical game. Uh, and maybe they don't because, you know, that's kind of sketchy. So maybe hard, hard to, to sell a book like this officially. But basically they will teach you, okay, here's how you can steal cards. Here's how you can stack cards. But they won't teach you a whole strategy. Okay, here's how you win at poker in, in a practical sense. Uh, so you have to kind of infer all of that from the individual things. And that's the part that I did, that 
the sequences and how those sequences make sense. That was my interpretation. And for the most part, I think they are they make sense, but they also assume uh, a lot of things. Uh, like we never tell which game you're playing. And that's on purpose because there's not it's not the focus of the game, but also it leaves us a lot of more uh, design freedom. Like we don't have to justify why you need high cards, why you need low cards, why you just need them because whatever game you're playing. Um, uh, so I would say some of the sequences are really uh, genuine and some are a bit more fantasy in the sense that they make sense, you could do that, but there are a lot of other things that will be more practical in a real life scenario. So no cheater will ever do some of those things, uh, even though they still make sense. That reminds me of a story. I've been re-watching Breaking Bad again, and I've just been going through some interviews, and they said for the scenes involved with cooking meth, they can't actually show specifically in detail what the characters are doing for obvious reasons, <laughs> yes. but they still have to toe that line of making it believable, making people understand what's happening. And it's a very complicated scientific process. And it's the same for card cheating. So I'm curious from a gameplay perspective, how did you walk through the different sequences with involving and introducing the player to the mechanics before increasing the complexity as you go on throughout the story? So um, how this was done, um, well, the short answer is a lot of iteration and and, <laughs> and playtesting, but basically uh, we started with the tricks themselves, and uh, I basically I made uh, mock-up animations of all the tricks that I thought could work. Basically, I, from all my research, I selected stuff that could be translated into interaction, and that was useful for sequences. And um, I also tried to have a good representation of all the variety of methods. Because if we're, we are telling people, okay, this is a game about card cheating, I thought that to, to fulfill that promise, there had to be every major move in card cheating represented. So I did all these tiny animations, which were like ideas of, okay, this, this is how it's going to look and how it's broadly going to work. And we start from there. And then I made sequences. Okay, this is a sequence where you're stealing cards. This is a sequence where you're picking cards. This is a sequence where you're stacking cards. And all the different variations of how you can do that. And try to think of, okay, how do we make them varied and combine in different interesting ways and how the complexity evolves over the game. So we started by just putting the sequences in and making a few scenes. And at the beginning, the game was had basically no tutorials. It was just, okay, you go here, you do this. You go there, you go th you do this. And so after we had a bunch of those scenes, we started building, okay, how do we teach this? Because, um, well, we, we quickly started to realize we have to teach a lot more than we thought. Like some people don't even know what suits are or what is the order on card values. Uh, and most people are not familiar with the concept that when the deck is in a certain order and there's a certain amount of players, the cards are dealt in that order and so they have to be interlaced 
and all that kind of stuff. So this was mostly done by Daisy, one of the designers. And uh, the good thing, she knew nothing about cards and card cheating. And so from her perspective, it was really useful because I was explaining, okay, this, this works like this and this is supposed to do that. But because she, she was struggling to understand, she was in a good position to kind of teach to the player because she had all those difficulties, no? Uh, but it was very slow. I would say probably the most, uh, well, like the biggest task in the game, design-wise and development-wise, was building all the teaching. Um, what I found really interesting is there are a number of different ways to interact with the cards. Sometimes you'll be moving the sticks or you'll be pressing the face buttons at certain timings. Um, what were some of the design decisions around the way that you interact with the cards when you're trying to abstract it in that way, um, you know, so that people can understand what they're doing, but also it's playable? Yeah, well, that started from those animations, and I already proposed some ideas. And uh, from my perspective, I was trying to... Um, I was working from my experience of manipulating cards. And, and even though some of the advanced techniques, I cannot really do them fluidly, like expertly, but I can do them uh, slowly, a bit clumsily. I understand what you're supposed to do and what is the feeling and the challenge of doing those things. So I wanted to find um, interactions that are challenging in the same way or, or as similar as possible. It's like, um, like, for instance, refill shuffling is about timing and this control of uh, the speed at which you refill shuffle. So that should be the kind of challenge you do. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, overhand shuffling and, and, and stacking is about understanding the sequence. So that should be the challenge, no? So you should have options, and you should be able to mess up in this, in the way you sequence your actions, things like that. So I was trying to propose something that kept the tactile feeling somehow as close as possible, and also the challenge feeling. Then uh, Arnaud, uh, Daisy, Francois, the rest of the team, they were taking that and adapting it. Uh, some things were pretty close to things I proposed. Some changed a lot because simply some were too difficult. And uh, the game is already quite difficult for people, uh, more than I thought, because um, I don't know. Like, I guess I am contaminated by, the, by, by doing card tricks and being very familiar with it. So for me, it's easier. And it's, it's, sometimes I don't really... Uh, see that it's going to be as difficult as that for people but anyway basically there was a process of simplification like, okay how do we make this playable how do we make it so that people don't get stuck and and uh, and and just give up the game so uh, I know people complain about quick time events and uh, I do also and uh, we all like all the team I think we tried our best to reduce that uh, to as little as possible. But there were just some cases where uh, the complexity of the techniques, the amount of techniques we had, the amount of things that we have to design, because every little game is a unique mini game that basically shares almost nothing with the others. So all, all of them have to be designed and play tested and whatnot. At some point, we 
we need to make the trade-off. So it's like, okay, this works here. It's a simple solution. There could be a more elegant one, but at the same time, we have so many other things. So we try to balance that out. So in some cases, not the best solution, but it, it was the best solution, I would say, in practical sense for us to be able to finish the game on time, you know? <laughs> um, what I really liked was um, it took me a while to get my head into the right place. But once I could see that you were teaching me the system of what we needed to do in this particular thing, it made me feel like a genius when I got it. Um, you know, that was something that I thought was really clever, but I really appreciate the ability to be able to practice many times because when I first look at some of these challenges, they, they just, you have to concentrate on this game, otherwise you, you'll end up in trouble or you'll end up dead, basically. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, balancing that challenge a bit more because you know that you you have a number of different difficulties as part of this game and um i've tried a few of the different ones and even on the simple difficulty um it can be quite complex um uh and if you fail there are ways to get through these things as well um you know, how did you sort of balance where that difficulty lied well the thing is we had to gamble a little bit ourselves too so because um, you have to produce a fair amount to be able to test it. The way the game is structured and the way the concept works, you have all these different techniques and all these different scenes. And um, each scene has some sequence and has a concept on how it works. It's very hard to change afterwards because there's writing involved. Um, there is a lot of design work involved. and um so um what i'm trying to say is we try to uh to anticipate and in some cases we succeeded and in some we didn't like for instance uh the uh the sequence when you return to the cafe and you have to memorize cards a lot of people find that super super challenging and that was not the idea like um, people feel a, a, a difficulty spike at that moment. Um, that was not entirely intentional, but um, we didn't really have much leeway around it. Like that scene was designed that way to offer some kind of novelty. Um, and uh, in our heads, it was like, yeah, you just pick four of a kind in a random car. That's not difficult to remember. But people take a while to realize that. And they get very frustrated until they do. So once you realize there's a very simple method to do it, the scene becomes very easy. Uh, but uh, a lot of people rush through it and get frustrated and forget and whatnot. So that was kind of not entirely anticipated. Um, and then, yeah, uh, um, okay, what, what else can I say on this? Like, again, like leaving, uh, leaving the option to rehearse as much as you want was added late, later, I mean, later, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of development because we realized, okay, people really need to be able to practice things and people really need reminders of older things because once you're like 
in scene 10, you might not remember what you did in scene 5. And so you need to be able to repractice that little bit and, and things like that. So we added, we started to add uh, little help, help everywhere. And um, often what we did is if something, if we realize on playtesting that people get stuck and repeatedly fail something, we start adding little helpers here and there, like maybe tweak the UI to, to make it help a little bit more, maybe tweak how it's framed in terms of how the, the trick is presented or the amount of rounds you need to win or, or things like that. It was very difficult, as I say, because oh, by the time we are testing things and we are able to see, by the time there's enough of it built, uh, we are very deep in the project. Like it's not like you build a platform and you can test levels, you know. Uh, like the tech is there and you can start testing levels and testing mechanics. Here you have to build a huge amount of stuff to be able to test it. So you have to kind of gamble a bit. And at the time you you test, if it doesn't work, either you remove it or you try to simplify it by adding like simplifying controls or simplifying the ui or stuff like that and some stuff we couldn't remove because it was embedded in the narrative so the scene is written because there's this sequence that was thought out it's storyboarded the scene is written it has to work and the entire scene falls apart and maybe we already uh send the text for a translation so it just it has to be done. <laughs> so one one moment we struggled with was was the when you throw a card. And there's there's this moment in the game where you throw a card at the at the opponent's seat. And that was super hard to make work and not to get people stuck there and, and die repeatedly. And it just it had to be done because it's tied to the narrative and things like that. So it was a challenge. <laughs> It's definitely interesting hearing you use the word gamble. I guess in some aspects, life <laughs> imitates art in that regard. Um, and on that note, I'm actually really curious to hear about the inspiration behind the art style of the game and what that process was like. Um, the process was, uh, I'm an illustrator and uh, I have worked on children and adult books. And uh, I also, uh, animation filmmaker, I've done a bunch of animation shorts and commissions. So this style is kind of um, taking a lot of stuff that I have done in, in the past and um, putting them together in a way that I have not done in the past, but is also very familiar. So this is uh, the technique is a process called monoprinting, which is the process of spreading paint on the surface and stamping it. And this allows you to create lots of different textures and effects because you can manipulate the paint in different ways and you can also stamp it in different ways. And the beauty of this technique is it uh, you cannot do much fine detail because it gets lost once you stamp. Your, your you need a, an amount of paint. So you, can do, don't do, you cannot do tiny lines and, and little details. But it gives you a lot of detail in the texture it creates. The texture is really intricate and it has that, uh, you can see the, the, the um, uh, uh, like the paint 
like the regularities of the paint. And that gives you this kind of high detail and low detail at the same time. So because I, I knew we would want to uh, remind or evoke the painterly aesthetic of Baroque painting, but I did not want to make a Baroque painting myself. So, and uh, it's a video game. So I think it needs to be modern in a way. So this was all trying to find this, this perfect balance between classical and modern, where it's really modern in a way, the way the compositions are made, like everything is very exaggerated. The proportions are completely absurd. Uh, the perspective never makes sense, uh, things like that. Uh, because, well, I guess this is my part of my interest as an illustrator, but also part of my criticism of, of art in video games. I think it's, I find very few video games that are free of the constraint of reality and perspective and proportions. Like for me as, a, as an illustrator, it's very liberating when you can just cheat in, in that visual sense. Like the perspective doesn't make sense, uh, proportions don't make sense, but now you're free. Now you can do whatever. And once you establish it and it's consistent and it's it's presented as a, as a thing that's done on purpose, the player accepts anything. So then you're really free to play with the image and to create all these little scenes. And that really makes a lot of stuff very, very easy uh, from a practical standpoint, like how to set up uh, characters on, on the scene and everything like that. You don't care about perspective at all. So, and and you're really free to do whatever you want. So, so for me, that technique was kind of this balance. Okay, I can make big shapes, simple compositions because everything has to be basically reduced to simple shapes. But then I have that high resolution detail of the actual texture, and it looks like painting. It looks enough like painting, basically. Um, and um, and also that that um, uh, allows you to make backgrounds that have no outline. That also makes them look more like painting. So you can have outline on your characters, and your characters really stand out very easily. And uh, and the characters also deliberately drawn very loose. Uh, the just a few lines, and that's to facilitate uh, trickery in the animation because uh, the, the puppets are not really rigged in a traditional sense. All the pieces are kind of floating. They're not attached to each other exactly. So that means you can, you can suggest three-dimensional movement by overlapping the pieces in different ways. And because they are drawn very loose, you will accept that uh, like a shoulder is out of place well, it kind of looks like the character has turned a little bit, uh, a little bit side sideways. You accept it, even though the image is just misplacing a little bit. In motion, it works, and that can, that only works if your art style is loose enough to allow for those inconsistencies that pieces don't really. Um, uh, fall in place all the time. Do you build it on a 3D plane? Is that the way that you design it or is it as a two-dimensional scene when you're building it? It's all two-dimensional. So we just mm, use a draw order number for, for where, where things are. And um, so no, not really, not, no 3D effects. 
as an illustrator myself, that that was just fascinating to listen to, like the whole process of monoprinting and the imperfection specifically that you mentioned. Creating it digitally, did you completely recreate it just, you know, in, uh, I guess, a program like Photoshop? Or was there any element of traditional painting as well that you've scanned in for the game? But yeah, everything is scanned. Oh really? So there's no digital there's no digital painting at all in the game. Like uh, oh wow. So so all the all the backgrounds are just to- like hundreds of prints of tiny little blobs and squares and lines that are printed and then they're colored digitally. So all the prints are made black and white and they are tinted in two colors. Like the white is tinted in one color, the black is tinted in another. And so everything is like uh, yeah, this overlapping of shapes into colors, and the characters are 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 drawn in ink, and also colored in digitally. Yeah, that's because I I did notice during the beginning of the game in my playthrough that time of day changes and affects the color palette as well, but all the shapes are remaining consistent. So I was wondering if you had to redo that entirely, or just sort of tweak the colors as you needed for the scene. Depending on the scene, some scenes they allow to just in-game, like with the post-process effects, to tint things enough to make them look different. Um, some others didn't. So the, the very extreme ones is basically the entire same illustration, like the, but I retinted everything in basically digitally in Photoshop to the new palette. So, so just in the beginning of the game, like the um, the exterior uh, landscape you see, the day and night one are obviously done uh, by me digitally specifically, because that's a very extreme change. You cannot achieve that, uh, or at least not not very well. You can achieve that, but I, I was I was not happy with how that looked. But the interior of the tavern. You have more leeway in how it's made, so it kind of depends on the scene and how the scene is kind of how the neutral lighting is, how much it allows you to to manipulate. Do you have a favorite location or a favorite piece that you put together? Yeah, I have a few. Like, um, okay, let me think. Um, I really like the pistol duel landscape. Like, there's a scene where there's a pistol duel and there's this this, this little landscape. And that one, uh, it was really easy for some reason. It really came together very fast. I was very happy with it. It looks like a painting. I guess that's that's part of what I like about it. I really like the baths because um, it has this nice ambience to it. Like the feel, you, I think you can feel the warmth of the baths, and and uh, it's kind of pleasant to look at in this, this relaxing way. Um, but yeah, that's, that's there a lot. I really like the, the Pompadour Saloon uh, because I really, there was this goal, okay, we need to, at some moment in the game, have this really luxurious palace that looks crowded. Like I also pushed a lot for that. Like I wanted crowds of people because I, I wanted the game to feel like a world to feel alive, to be populated, of many, many people populating the world. So that was a huge work because it means creating lots of assets for NPCs in the background. And they're like 
maybe 2000, about 2000 individual pieces for characters. So, uh, but uh, the fantasy is fulfilled. Like, uh, I want you to enter these big places and they were full of people. You have all these crowds. And so that one, I think it really, uh, uh, that was hits the nail for me. Like, okay, that's what I wanted. This huge golden palace, really luxurious, really baroque, really full of people, massive chandeliers. <laughs> you can communicate a lot more because the player is bringing their imagination to kind of fill in the blanks of what you've represented effectively. Yeah, that's a lot of the idea that suggests rather than show. Uh, it's always more powerful. And I think uh, I try to, I deliberately try to do some of that in, in the design where this, a, tiny, a few blobs, they suggest something in the background and people read it. Also in the animation, because of all these... Uh, uh, all this trickery with those very few pieces for characters and, and you manage, manage to make them work, turn around and everything. And a lot of that is, is just suggested. People imagine the frames in between. Also the 12, it's deliberately animated in 12 frames per second, no interpolations. So I think that facilitates that, I, that concept of you imagine things in between the frames and you imagine the, ver the better version in between the frames. But for me, it's more than saving work is the importance of things like that is the freedom it gives you creatively later. Like maybe you save work, maybe you don't, because as you say, in the end, you still have to think about it and make it work. So I'm not entirely sure how much work it saves, but I think it, it certainly for me, it uh, leaves you with more f design freedom because you get you can get away with a lot more things so i always feel that realism is this prison where you have to now like now that you establish there are shadows okay well now there have to be shadows everywhere now that you establish this perspective well now there has to be perspective everywhere and at some point it's gonna annoy you because you want to do something and there is something that's hard to solve because you have this thing so the less you have of those things the more free you are to design and, and do what you need. Do you have big piles of all of the works that you've created? And, and is it in a state that could be displayed in some format or are they just kind of, once you finish with them, are they gone? There is a big pile. Uh, I took a picture of it. It's in the, we released uh, an art book, a digital art book on PDF on, on Steam. And there is a picture of, of the big pile. Well, there are several pictures, but there's one of the big pile on it because I, th I thought it was funny. And it was like a worth a picture, and and I don't know. It must be um, how much? It must be like twenty centimeters high or something. I don't know. It's a lot of paper. It might be like easily four to five thousand pieces of paper, um, and um, you could display it. But a lot of it is really disjointed blobs of paint. Like they don't look like much isolated. You have to kind of explain, oh, this belongs to this. If you see it all together. Um, so for practical reasons, it, not, none of it was done to look pretty as a, as a uh, maybe just like the the sketches for, for backgrounds. There were like full sketches of backgrounds only a single piece of paper. It does look nice. Uh, but a lot of it, it looks like disjointed stuff. 
Um, I'm just curious. People have had a chance to play this game now. Um, you know, the reaction seems to be really positive. People really enjoying what it's done. How do you feel about having this game that you worked on for several years out there uh, for people to play uh, and enjoy? I'm super happy, very, very proud. It does feel strange because, uh, yeah, uh, it's been a while and uh, it works. <laughs> and that's kind of crazy that, that, that it works. I think, um, um, yeah, so the, the most satisfying thing is some people are very passionate about it and that that's what's important. Like I, There's always going to be people like it more, people like it less. Uh, as long as there's people who are really fascinated, that makes me truly, truly happy. That makes you feel like you you succeeded. Like I, I, I guess I I personally measure success by the kinds of reactions, not by like commercial success and stuff like that. Because uh, you like, hope to be understood, and when you see people understand what you try to do, and really uh, feel the things you wanted them to feel. That is success. So there are a few like reactions online, reactions from streamers, a few articles that came out that were truly like exactly what we wanted. And uh, so that feels really, really good. It feels like, okay, well, we, we, we did our job. And um, also the fan art is very funny. That was not one of my hopes. Uh, I did not try to make iconic characters on purpose so seeing that people really stick to the characters and they, they like them and they want to draw them they're recognizable in the fan art uh is surprising to me like oh that that's something new that works and also seeing some magicians very being very appreciate the how much it's uh stays true to the to the real thing like I think magicians often are, are are used to seeing magic and cheating represented in very f- unrealistic ways in cinema and being frustrated with things like, oh yeah, of course, you would never do that. That's that's absurd. You know, or that's that's just not, just not possible. And they're they're very surprised. And so far, they're also very happy to see represented the work, you know, the work it takes to do that. <laughs> Well, I can tell you I learned a lot more in this game than I expected coming into it. It is a, a beautiful game to look at um, and one that I'll think about for a really long time and, and suggest to many people uh, this is what games can be. Uh, they don't have to be those things that you know you automatically expect out of a video game. So thank you so much for, for making it um, and for joining us and talking a little bit about, about Card Shark. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Card Shark is available now. You can play it on Switch or you can pick it up on the computer. Um, you can find more information information about it by heading to cardsharkgame.com. Um, Sifter is produced by Nicholas Kennedy, Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Ang, who was my co-host on this episode. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Thanks for having me, Gianni. Uh, Adam Christou, Mitch Lowe is our senior producer, and my name is Gianni Giovanni, and I am the executive producer. Thanks to Omni Studio for their support of Sifter's three podcasts. You can find links to everything we talked about on our website. That is sifter.com.au, where you can read more about the games and the guests that we featured. If you also enjoy this episode, why not join the Sifter community? You can also share your creativity with others in our very chill server filled with awesome people. 
You can find that at sifter.com.au forward slash discord to get there. That's sifter.com.au forward slash discord. And also, if we could have your moment for attention, could you please share the show? It is the number one free thing you can do to support us. Word of mouth is really important to indie podcasts like this one. So let your friends know if you reckon they'll enjoy it. Send them a link, make it easy for them to take part in the show, and we will love you forever for it. And that is my personal promise to you. That's all the time we have for this episode. Nikolai, thank you so much again for for joining us on this episode for a really fascinating conversation about the art and the craft of the card cheating game. Thank you. And until next time, have fun. Chris Button here from Drop Rate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Unicorn Overlord might have a strange name, but don't dismiss its tactical prowess. It uses a, a tactics mode, um, and, which is similar to the Gambit system that was in Final Fantasy XII for your um, uh, your squad mates, and you can say, okay, well, you know, Hodrick, who's my legionnaire with the big shield, I want him to prioritize protecting the back row. They're going to take the most damage. If they take a physical hit, they're going to go down, but I need them to be protected. So you can get quite granular with this, and I reckon you could build some pretty wild builds that are <laughs> totally game-breaking, um, but it's kind of the fun of the tactical squad-based gameplay in Unicorn Overlord. Tune in to Drop Rate to find out why Unicorn Overlord might just be one of 2024's sleeper hits. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.